morning. Um, I'm Janet Travis's husband. <laughs> so, and we actually have, we have um, our next anniversary will be 30 years and it's been um, 30 wonderful years. So it's um, been a real privilege to be Janet Travis's husband. <laughs> Want to touch on a couple items just for the, on church life that are coming up. Um, one I was going to touch on, but you've missed it, so um, I won't share about our newcomer gathering, but um, Tuesday night, this coming Tuesday, it's October 2nd, we have a uh, Bible study that's starting up on the book of Second Timothy. If you are not in a small group, one of our growth groups, a men's group, a women's group, I really want to encourage you to consider coming out to the Second Timothy study. It's meeting on Tuesday nights um, for men and women, and then on Wednesday mornings for women only. And it's um, Pastor John is going to be teaching for about half an hour, and then people will break out into small groups. You'll be um, in the same group for the whole seven weeks, building relationships. And it's a study of the book of Second Timothy, and I really would want to encourage you to take, you know, if you're not in a group, to consider coming out for that. You can register online on their website, or they'll help you at the Welcome Center, too, if you want to on the way out at the desk. And also, for those of you who may well have a child that you want to do a family dedication, um, it's coming up on October 21st. We're having a family dedication service. And then there's two classes that you can choose either, either date. One of them um, you just missed. It was this morning. Um, but the next one is October the 7th, a week from today, um, is the next class. So if you want to do, be part of that family dedication, it's required that you attend either one of those classes. So I encourage you to come on out next week if you're interested. And you can find information in the current here about that. Would you join with me before we open up God's word together? Would you join with me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for this time we have to come together as a church family, to sing our praises of worship to you, to give of the, the finances that you've given to us. And Lord, now to open your word and to study it together. And Father, as we're going to see as we go through James this morning, that you hold your word in high value. Your word is life-changing. And I pray that as we study it together this, this afternoon and this morning, that you would help us to, Lord, to, to gain insight into your word. I pray that you would illuminate our hearts and minds. And Lord, I pray that you would change us. And Lord, I pray that each one of us would be open to your changing work as your spirit works in our midst today. Father, we commit this time to you and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. This past summer, um, this just a couple months ago, my wife Janet and I and two of our three sons had the privilege and the, just the opportunity to visit Germany for about 11 days. It was a wonderful trip, and while we were there, we walked through the places where back in the early 1500s, the Reformation took place. And while we went through there, we had the opportunity to visit quite a few cathedrals and old churches. And I will tell you, those cathedrals, if you've never been to Europe and you see some of the old cathedrals that go back to predating even the Reformation around the early 1500s, some of them going back as early as like 1000 AD and so these places were, these churches were massive. And as we were going through them, you would see just these towering ceilings. You would see the stained glass windows just filled with art. They were unbelievably majestic. But as we were going through them, I couldn't help think to myself that they're also 
so spiritually dead. Not only were they spiritually dead now, but going back to the period of the Reformation, the more we learned about that period, and I've actually been doing some reading on it since I came back, it, it piqued my curiosity, but sadly, the churches at that time were so spiritually dead. I couldn't, when I was looking through and I saw all of the abuses that were taking place in the church that fueled the Reformation that took place under Martin Luther and others. It really saddened my heart. Leading up to Martin Luther's bold challenge against the church, the church had been led by six consecutive popes in the late 1400s into the 1500s that these popes, their lives were just filled with shocking sexual sin, greed for power, indulgent spending, and worldly living that would just break your heart. And as I went through and I saw all this, you can understand what rose up in men like Martin Luther as they took a stand against what they were seeing, as they were shocked and their hearts were broken as well. Not only were the Bibles not being read by the common people, but even the, the priests and the monks weren't reading the Bible. They didn't have Bibles. Many of them didn't even have access to Bibles. The seminaries of the day were not even opening up the Word of God. They were teaching Aristotle and Plato and other things like that. And the Word of God, Jesus Christ, the Word of God, and the Word of God had been pushed aside for worthless religion. It was so sad when we were seeing all of this take place. The people, they were not only, were they, they were not shepherded by godly and loving people, church leaders and elders, but they were being abused by corrupt officials. People were being publicly shamed and tortured if they didn't live up to a list of moralistic standards that were out there. And we saw while we were there um, some of the things that they would do to people. One of them, actually, I had to take a picture of because they were, they were being shamed if, and actually publicly humiliated if their dresses were maybe two inches too short if they fell asleep in church, if they gossiped, all these lists of different things, even including if they happened to be a bad musician. Now, you might say, what does that have to do with anything? Really nothing. But I wanted to show you something because I was in a museum and I saw this and I thought, I need to take a picture of this and send it to Benjamin. And he was really glad that I did, but it was actually happening in churches. Um, what we saw, and I'm going to show you a picture in a moment, it's called the shame flute. It says, this was used for shaming bad musicians. The neck of the musician was forged, forded through the upper round hole, and the fingers were placed under the iron, which shows the many finger holes. This gave the impression that the musician was playing the flute. I'm going to show this to you in a moment. The thing probably weighs about 60, 70 pounds. They put it over the person. They put a lock in place, a big lock and chain, and they were forced to walk through the streets of the town being ridiculed and mocked while they wore it. And there's the shame flute. Now, you wonder why they didn't have praise bands in the Middle Ages. <laughs> but not only was there a shame flute, but they had shame masks that people were forced to wear for just the minorest moral behavior. And what was sad as well was here were all of the, not all, but the church leaders in general were living these immoral lives, and yet the common people were being publicly shamed and disgraced. 
Here's one of the masks. They call it a mask of shame. If you didn't live up to the moralistic standards that were set, you'd have to wear this over your head. They'd lock it in place, and you'd have to walk through the streets of the town being mocked and ridiculed. Here's another one. And the things that were taking place were just so, so sad. Now, in the midst of all this, as the church had lost its first love, men like Martin Luther, John Huss, and a number of others stood up and took a stand for the God's word. And Martin Luther, in the midst of all of this, just pursuing moralism all around him, was bold enough to proclaim that salvation comes through faith alone in Jesus Christ. He went on to show that no matter what we do, no matter how hard we strive, no matter how moralistic we may be, we can never earn God's favor apart from salvation through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Now, I mentioned John Huss. John was a man about 100 years before Martin Luther who took the same stand and was burned at the stake. Others, countless others, were burned at the stake we saw in some depictions where they would, take a, they would take this large bag and they would put the person in the bag and they would tie it shut and they would take them to the river right through the town as the townspeople all gathered together and they'd throw the bag in the river as the townspeople stood and watched the person drown. They'd have these, you know, the masks would be worn. It was sad. But if, and Martin Luther took a strong stance. We got to see some of the places where he had been and some of the um, famous places and and in the midst of all of this, at the risk of death, he was boldly proclaiming faith in Jesus Christ. Now, it's also interesting, too, that Martin Luther, the reason I'm bringing a lot of this up, he struggled with the book of James. You see, Martin Luther, he wanted to take the book of James and a couple other books of the Bible, the book of Revelation and a couple others, and put them at the back of the Bible and kind of put them in a category of there's not, they're not quite as inspired as the rest of the Bible. Now, you may wonder, well, what, why did he do that? See, Martin Luther struggled with the message of James because James highlights good works throughout his letter. And Martin Luther was seeing all of this ridiculous behavioral things that were going on to try and earn God's favor. He saw all the rampant abuses that were taking place, and he just really struggled with the combination of faith and works. And what we're going to see as we go through the book of James, and actually even through some of what Pastor Tom has already covered in chapter 1, is that the Christian life, genuine faith in Jesus Christ, is a beautiful picture of an inward relationship with Jesus Christ, that the outward fruit that comes out, the glorious fruit coming out, is just the result of our glorious new identity in Jesus Christ. So, Today, I think it's a lot easier for us. We're not living within the time of Martin Luther and seeing all those abuses and seeing all the, the moralistic behavior and the things that were being done to earn salvation apart from faith in Jesus Christ. See, we're not seeing those abuses, and I think it's a little bit easier for us to take the teachings of all of the Word of God and combine faith with works and understand how it works so beautifully together. Well, I'm going to read from James chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, if you would, to turn to um, James chapter 1, beginning of verse 22. If you like a Bible, just raise your hands. I'm going to put the scripture on the screen as well, but we'd love to give you a Bible, so just raise your hand. And we're going to begin reading in verse 22. 
But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Well, last week, let me turn back. I want to put up on the screen, starting in verse 22. Last week, we saw in verse, in verse 19 the importance of listening. But verse 22 now goes on to show us the importance of not only listening, but also being doers of the Word. See, if we just are listening to the Word of God, and we're not doing the Word of God, that's contributing to what we're going to see as we go through this passage to worthless religion. See, as we look at verse 22, starting in this verse and moving on through up through verse 25, we see James contrasts two different kinds of individuals. The first is the person who hears the Word of God, and he looks at it intently, and then he becomes a doer of the Word. The con let's contrast that with the other person that James shows us about in here. And that's the person who's a hearer of the Word of God. He walks away from it and never puts it into practice. So we see the person who's a hearer and a doer and the person who's a hearer only. And this, these two different pictures are being given to us here. See, if we, if, we merely, if we merely read the Bible and we walk away and we, just, we fail to put it into practice, we run the risk of becoming what James talks about here as the person who looks into the mirror and he walks away and he forgets who he is. And what James is saying there, that's the person who hears the word of God, doesn't take it into his heart. There's no life change that comes with the, look, with the hearing of the word of God. So if there's no life change, when they put the Bible aside, the word of God aside, and they walk away, they're like that man who sees his image in the mirror and it just vanishes. But you see, we contrast that with the person who's a hearer and a doer, and the key is the life change that takes place in your heart. Because you hear the Word of God, you allow it into your heart and to change you, so that when you walk away from it, you're not like that person that walks away from a mirror and that picture vanishes, but you walk away changed through the Word of God. That's what he's showing us here is that it's lasting change that's needed. See, it's one thing to be charmed by the Word of God. It's another thing to be changed by it. You see, if we look at charmed by the Word of God, I'll go back to, um, let's go back all the way to Jesus' time. And King Herod, remember our, our friend King Herod? And what did the Bible say about King Herod? It said he loved to listen to John the Baptist's teaching. So, here was Herod, a totally unrepentant, unregenerate man 
who loved to listen to John the Baptist. What was he? He was charmed by the word of God that he was hearing. He wasn't changed by it. See, we know that because what happened in, in Herod's life eventually? He was the one who had John the Baptist beheaded. You see, he was charmed and not changed. We can, as, in, as evangelical Christians, we can all just go through church. Not, I mean, I'll just say those who are, those who are non-believers because our, our churches are filled with them every week. People who have yet to accept the word of God and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. And people can come week after week, and they can hear the Word of God proclaimed. They can listen to podcasts. They can listen to sermons. And week after week, let it come in. They become hearers, but they resist the transforming grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But they've heard the Word. You see, we can also say there are people that in in seminaries, sadly, in liberal seminaries all around the world, who devote their lives to studying the Word of God. And they go through their lives completely unchanged. See, one of the things they say is that 18 inches from the head to the heart can be the longest distance in all of the world. You see, and that's what James is telling us here. We need to be people who are not only hearers of the Word of God, but that we're also people who are effectually changed and responding to it. I'm going to take a look in verse 25. And what we see in verse 25 is what I want to call a right response to the Word of God. Now, I mentioned that this was like for non-believers, that you could week after week hear it. Well, this doesn't only apply to non-believers, because we as believers in Jesus Christ need to be studying God's Word and constantly changed by it. They call it sanctification, the ongoing process of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. So, how does James describe this change process taking place? The first thing I want to show us is that we are to study it intently. Look at verse 25. But one who looks at, looks intently at the perfect law. Now, if your spiritual life, when it comes to God's word, is you pick the Bible up off the shelf, you just kind of flip it open, say, okay, I think I'll read this passage today. You read a little bit of the Bible, you close it, and you walk away. Is that studying God's Word intently? You see, when we study God's Word intently, that's, by the way, that's why we do Bible studies around here. That's why I was promoting the 2 Timothy study. It's going to be an intent look at the Word of God, where, yeah, we'll read it, we'll be hearers of the Word, and then we want to ask questions of it. Oh, well, what does that mean? Well, how does that relate to what Paul said back in Ephesians? Or we, we dig in a little bit deeper And what starts to happen as we're praying for God to change us, the Word of God starts to become inside of us. And as we continually study the Word, we become changed. I don't want to give away my number three, but we become changed by it. So it has to be a lot deeper than just a quick glance at God's Word. Number two, it says we we need to study it continually says, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it. Now, in this, in the New American Standard, which is what we're reading right now, he says, and it's translated, and abides by it. The New International Version says, and continues in it. You see, what it does, it shows this ongoing sense 
that we are continually in an ongoing way abiding in God's word and doing this on a regular basis over time. Now, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, I hope that your spiritual maturity 10 years from now is a lot more than where it is today. But the only way that's going to happen is if you're studying God's word intently and you're studying God's word continually. Then number three is this person is changed by it. It says, not having become a forgetful hearer, and then he goes on, I'll combine the next two, because number four says, be a doer of what it says, but not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. Now, I remember with James already talked about earlier what we read about the glancing in the mirror and walking away and being someone who forgets what he sees or who he is. What we're seeing there is an identity. See, when we start to study God's Word and we become changed by it, the process before we become a doer, what's happening is there's an, inter an internal change going on so that our life, we are now becoming obedient to God's Word. We're changed by it, and that becomes number four. We become a doer of what it says. You see, if you look at, and this is that struggle that Martin Luther had, is if we start looking at behavior without first looking at the heart, you know what they call that? That's legalism. You see, legalism says, oh, let's, um, let's address the behavior. No drinking, no smoking, no dancing, and all of the list. Now, I'm not an advocate here telling you go out and get drunk and go out and start smoking and go out and start dating girls who do. What you have to look at is God is telling us, listen, those are moral behaviors. If it's coming out of a changed life, if we are transformed on the inside and we're becoming sanctified, more like Jesus, the fruit that comes out of that lifestyle is an obedience to the Word of God. But you see, what legalism does is it skips the life change and it starts to focus on the list of behavior. And see, behavior without life change is legalism. But you see, now, if there's life change without behavioral change, that's licentiousness. And what James is telling us is our, the fruit of our lives should result in good works because we've been transformed by the Word of God into the image of Jesus Christ. And that's how we can tie these things together. And then number five, it says, and if you look back at verse 25, we do all these things, this man will be blessed in what he does. Who doesn't want to be blessed? You see, this is what the Christian life is telling us, is that if we become this kind of person who's changed on the inside, we're going to be blessed by it. And that's a beautiful imagery. Remember Paul, if you go back, and Paul had said that um, he has learned to find contentment in all circumstances. Paul didn't say, man, I've learned to be happy every time I'm out of jail or things are going well. Well, Paul, look at Paul. He was shipwrecked. He was, you know, he was beaten. He was imprisoned. He was, you know, stoned. And the guy had a hard time. But it said, I learned to be content in all circumstances. And see, the, the same can be true for us. When we apply God's word to our lives, like James is talking about, and we're transformed on the inside, it starts to really change our lives. And what we realize is there's a direct correlation 
between our individual response to God's Word and our effectiveness and our enjoyment in the Christian life. See, if you want to have a gospel witness to your neighbors and your friends and your co-workers, you need to be changed on the inside. See, now all of a sudden when you start telling them about the Word of God, they're picturing your lifestyle in their mind and they're saying, wow, I want to be like that. So they're willing to listen to your message. See, when we live our lives this way and when the Word of God is transforming us, we become more effective in the Christian faith. The more you know God's Word, when somebody comes to you and says, you know, I'm really struggling in my marriage or I'm really struggling with this sin, we'll know where to go in Scripture to direct them. You see, we become more effective, but we also learn to enjoy life more. doesn't mean the trials are going to go away, but it means when you are loving your wife as Christ loved the church, and you do that day in and day out, guys, I guarantee she's going to respond to you a lot better than when you're harsh and when you treat her as the world does. You see, as we learn to, to love God, spend time in His Word, be transformed on the inside, we're going to be blessed because of it. I want to, um, you know, actually, I want to touch, I'll touch on something for a moment. The, the, NI, the New American Standard translates that and said, by, and abides by it. When I do weddings, one of the things I love to do, in the first service, I looked around, there's a bunch of people that I've done their weddings for, and I could tell they were all like, yeah. I like to talk about the fact in a marriage, it's not easy. For those of you who are married, you're probably sitting there saying, yep, I, yeah, you're right. You see, marriage is taking two sinners, a very sinful man and a very sinful woman, and bringing them together and say, okay, now become one. Go ahead and go do it. It is not easy. See, that's when, like, when two sinners come together like that, that's when the sparks start to fly. All of a sudden, we're now rubbing up against someone 24-7. They see all of our weaknesses. They know our sins. They know our habits. And we know theirs. And you put two people like that together, and it's not easy. But you see, what starts to happen is when we start abiding in Jesus Christ as a man and as a woman. And I like to take him to John chapter 15. That's where it talks about the vine and the branches. Who's the vine? Jesus. Who are the branches? We are. Where does the branch find its nourishment? From the vine. And see what happens when that branch is finding nourishment from the, when the branch is finding nourishment from the vine. That branch flourishes and it produces leaves and fruit. But what happens when the branch no longer starts being nourished by the vine? They say it withers and dies and is cut off and burned. You see, guys, when we are finding our nourishment in Jesus Christ, through the Word of God and what I'm talking about with this life change, now all of a sudden, as we're abiding in Christ, we become effectual. We're able to accomplish the things that God wants us to do, and our spouses like us even more. Ladies, when you're abiding in Jesus Christ and you are being nourished by the vine who is Jesus Christ himself, your husband is going to be attracted to what you become because the fruit of the Spirit starts coming out of your life. And you see, and that is the key to oneness in marriage, is abiding in Christ as individuals. But you see, it's not only in marriage. This is the key to Christian discipleship for all of us in all areas of our lives. 
one of the things, I, I've noticed this in all of the churches where I've served as a pastor, is that the difficult years as parents, too, there's, they're really, when we're raising children from like 6th grade to 12th grade, and by the way, I sound like your typical older person now because I'll say it goes so fast. But you see, what I see is I see so many times parents who allow their kids to get so caught up in the things that the, the, the secular society offers. And these are not bad things, okay? They're good things. My, I coached baseball for 12 years. My kids played baseball and some other sports. But, you see, they get so caught up because today sports and band and drama and all of these things, they're so consuming that for kids to do all of these activities and then do their homework, they have no time left for anything else. And you see what ends up happening is we see these teenagers that have no Christian community from those years of 6th grade through 12th grade. And I'm not, I, I well, actually am, I'm going to put out a, an, an attaboy here for our youth pastor, Jeremy. Jeremy does an awesome job with our teenagers. And our youth group is pouring into these young people so that as they're going through the trials that come with the teenage years, they're doing it in community with other believers. They're getting older people like, you know, Jeremy's, it's funny I'm calling Jeremy older, he's you know, probably 26, but they're pouring into the lives of these young people and they're helping them grow sanctification in Christ. Otherwise, what ends up happening, it's so sad when I see it, there's kids that, man, they've gone through all of those years. They hit 12th grade, they graduate from high school, they've never experienced Christian community like that. They go off to college, and their parents wonder why they never connect with the church, why they never seek out Christian community in college. And they watch their kids become what James says, is that person who looks in the mirror and walks away. And their identity is found in something completely other than Jesus Christ. You see, our abiding in Christ is the key to Christian discipleship. So I'm going to summarize these passages by just giving you this point. May we personally be changed by the Word of God and not merely charmed by, the, by it. It's a key, key, key thing for us to just be seeking that life change through the Word of God. Well, now, as we move on, I'm going to wrap us up in the next two verses as we wrap up. But before I turn back to those, I want to touch on something. James, when we read it before, you might have noticed he talked about religion. When we think about the word religion today, it usually doesn't bring out too many really good connotations, does it? If we think about, how about um, John Lennon? He wrote the song, Imagine. What was he saying? Basically saying, imagine a world without religion. Christians ourselves, we tend to say it ourselves. You know, we'll say, oh, it, it's not about religion, it's about a relationship, as if one is bad and one is good. You see, I'm going to give you an idea here that both of these are really good, because Christianity is about a relationship. But the secular world as well, you know, what do they attribute over the centuries most of the wars that have taken place to? Religion. Now, what we see in James in verses 26 and 27 is that he is going to give us another contrast. Remember the contrast we saw earlier about the man who looks in the mirror and we have the, the hearer and then the one who's a doer? Well, now we see a contrast of religions and we see what James is really referring to as a genuine religion and a worthless religion. And I can, I'm pretty confident that James would totally agree with John Lennon 
had John Lennon wrote his song, Imagine a World Without Worthless Religion. Because a lot of things have been done in the names of, name of Christianity, totally apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. But as we go on, God is concerned that we have a religious experience that is acceptable and pleasing to Him. So that's one of the signs. How do we know that our religion is not worthless? Well, is it acceptable and pleasing to God? And now we have to find out what exactly is acceptable and pleasing to God. But as we talk about, as I'm talking about religion now, I want to give you, what am I talking about when I say the word religion? Well, think of it as religion is simply the outward expression of one's faith. And the outward is formed by the inward, the heart. You see, is religion a bad thing? No, because you know what? If your heart is right with God and you are right on the inside, the outward expression of that is going to be something beautiful. And religion then, in that context, a genuine religion is a thing of beauty. But you see, if your heart is dead on the inside, the outside is going to be totally worthless. Let's take a look. I want to reread verses 26 and 27. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. See, as we go through that, we see the importance that our religion be one that's acceptable to God and pleasing to Him. That's going to be my takeaway point from these two verses, is that may we corporately, think of us as a church, if we have an outward expression of a religion, may we corporately experience genuine religion which is acceptable to God rather than a worthless religion lacking true heart change. See, worthless religion is governed by a set of rules. Genuine religion is known for its transforming grace. Luther, at the time, he was surrounded by what I would say is worthless religion gone wild. You know, I, I walked into some of these churches, and they, they all had a section where they, they collected relics. So picture back here, it's in the 13, 14, 1500s, and the church leaders, and the money was pouring into the church, they all wanted relics. And then I'll tell you why. But I never realized that Mary, the mother of Jesus, had about 32 left big toes. And the reason I say that, the churches collected the bones of the saints. It's a good thing they didn't have cars and airplanes back then, because if they had gone from one church to another, they still would put it together saying, well, wait a minute. That church said it had Peter's femur, but so do these other seven churches. You see, it really got that ridiculous. I can remember when we were looking at these different churches, we saw the bones of the Apostle Peter that were supposed to be, actually that was not in Germany, but we saw something from Timothy. We saw a thorn from Jesus' crown. We saw a splinter from Jesus' cross. We saw a vial that was supposedly actually containing tears, the actual tears from Jesus. You see, what these churches would do is they would collect these relics, but sadly, they would charge the people, the common people, to come in and see them. 
And what they were told was by viewing the relics, you were buying countless years out of purgatory for yourself. And the money that was coming in was going back out to build these extravagant churches and cathedrals. It was sad. The one, the one church said that they actually had the steps of Pontius Pilate's palace, the ones that Jesus walked up when he was um, being in his trial. Now, I'll tell you, I didn't see that. I, just, I read about that in a book on Martin Luther. But what they said they would do, people would come, and for a price, you could crawl up the steps on your knees. And every time you crawled up the steps, you got that many more years off of purgatory. And people would just keep on doing it. Then you heard probably about things called indulgences. You ever never saw one these are indul indulgences from the time of martin luther around 1520 and what they are is they're little metal dishes they would get filled with melted wax and as the wax would harden they would stamp it and they would sell these to the people and by buying an indulgence you could buy one of your loved ones out of purgatory so that they could go to heaven if you paid even more money you could cover the cost of your own future sins kind of like a spiritual ira and here was Martin Luther. He was watching all of this take place all around him. And he was seeing Christianity become such a mockery that people thought that they were buying their way into heaven all the while being completely ignorant of the gospel message of Jesus Christ and passing away into a Christless eternity. And some godly people were watching this take place. And that's what fueled the Reformation of those days. You see, though, sadly, churches today, not to this extreme, but churches today can be guilty of similar things. You know, I mentioned what legalism is. It's a list of rules. And we set these rules out there and tell people, you know, if you don't drink, if you don't smoke, if you don't... And it's almost like saying, if you don't do these things, you're okay with God. See, what the reality is, what we need to be concerned about is what's going on inside our hearts. And then hopefully we become the people that don't want to do non-moralistic behavior. You see, that's what real genuine discipleship is all about. It's being changed on the outside, and that's the message that James is giving us. He goes on in verse 27, James starts talking about ministry to the widows and orphans. You see, James wasn't saying that all of our ministry happens only to the widows and orphans. He was saying they're the ones who need it the most. They, they just need protection and help. But all along this continuum, we should be helping people that have these needs. And he gave the widows and orphans just as an example. You see, for us, we can't reduce religion to charity and morality. But a genuine religion contains both. And that's what James is showing us. And see, our acts of kindness really should be the fruit of a changed life. So James gives us, and I'm going to wrap up by showing you this, what I would call, in verses 26 and 27, a test of genuine religion. The first one is found in verse 26, and it's a bridled tongue. He said, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. You see, with our tongue... We can worship God and we can gossip. With our tongue, we can encourage others or we can tear them down. With the very same tongue, 
we can build up the church of Jesus Christ or we can tear it down by gossiping and complaining. With the same tongue, we can share the good news of Jesus Christ. We can share the gospel. And with the very same tongue, we can destroy our gospel witness. See, our tongues really matter. The second point he gives us is a compassionate heart. You see, what James is saying is, if you're telling me you're a follower of Jesus Christ, but you're not showing compassion, I really question whether there's been heart change inside. Because a compassionate heart is one of the signs of genuine religion. You know what? We become blessed when we live with a compassionate heart. Um, just a brief story. I remember a number of years ago, somebody here at the church told me that their mother was dying. She was on hospice. And they asked me if I would go visit her. Um, thinking back, I think she was 94 years old. I walked in the hospital. The room was, the room was really dark. She was lying there in the bed. And she didn't know Jesus. She had attended church years and years ago, so she knew about Jesus. But I took my Bible out, and I started reading to her, and I got to the gospel, and she was so attentive. And I shared, her, shared with her the good news of Jesus Christ, and she started to cry. And as I read, she came to the point and asked me that she wanted to put her faith in Jesus Christ. And we prayed, and at 94 years old, she put her faith in Jesus Christ, and she wouldn't let me leave. She wanted me to keep reading the Bible. And I did. I just stayed and I read to her. And then about two days later, I went back and I was going to read more scripture to her. And the hospital room was empty. And the nurse comes up to me and she says, oh, you mustn't have heard. She just passed away a few hours ago. And here she was. She drifted away into the arms of Jesus Christ. You know who was changed more that day? Well, she got heaven out of it. But do you know how changed I was? Those are the wonderful parts of pastoral ministry. See, when we show compassion, God blesses us as long as it's coming from the heart. And then the third test of genuine religion is a clean life. See, that's what Luther was afraid of too. Kind of like if you go back and Paul, Paul struggled with this. Shall we go on sinning? And what was the answer what Paul gave? May it never be. But you see what James is showing us here is that if you know Jesus Christ, your heart has been changed. You're conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. You're going to live a moral life. So we're really going to care about not sinning. Why? Not so we can earn God's favor, but because we love Jesus Christ so much. So these are the signs that we can look at that James gives us what is the sign of genuine religion? And we see it right here. And I want to encourage all of us, as we look at our own faith, it starts inwardly as we allow God to transform our hearts so we become people who are living with a bridled tongue that glorifies God. We're showing compassion to people around us, and the gospel is being spread by our gospel witness, by our compassion. And then our behavior we're not striving. We're not thinking that we can earn God's favor. We're just rejoicing that we have been saved, the sinners that we are, so that we can, in our hearts, say, Lord, help me to stop sinning going forward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this understanding that we can get from the book of James, and we see this balance between faith and works. Lord, I thank you that men like Martin Luther, John Huss, and others 
Lord, they took a stand for you. They were willing, in, in Huss's case, to give his life for the gospel. And Lord, I pray that we would be so bold today. Help us to live our faith in a secular culture where we would radiate the good news of Jesus Christ. When people see us, our lifestyle matches what's inside of us. So Lord, that when we share the good news, people want what we have. Lord, help us to be that kind of a believer in Jesus. And Father, I pray that Riverstone Church would be the kind of church that is known for genuine religion and not one, Lord, where we are just looking good on the outside, we're striving on the outside, and we're empty and we're dead on the inside. Father, may we grow in our Christ-likeness. We thank you for this time together. May we encourage one another forward towards Christ as well. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week.